Section 8 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 2, by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 2, by Washington Irving. Book 4, Chapter 12. It was asserted by the wise men of ancient times, who had a nearer opportunity of ascertaining the fact, that at the gate of Jupiter's palace lay two huge tuns, one filled with blessings and the other with misfortunes, and it would verily seem as if the latter had been completely overturned and left to deluge the unlucky province of New Nederlands. For about this time, while harassed and annoyed from the south and the north, incessant forays were made by the border chivalry of connecticut upon the pigsties and hen-roosts of the netherlanders every day or two some broad-bottomed express rider covered with mud and mire would come floundering into the gate of new amsterdam freighted with some new tale of aggression from the frontier whereupon anthony van corlear seizing his trumpet the only substitute for a newspaper in those primitive days would sound the tidings from the ramparts with such doleful notes and disastrous cadence as to throw half the old women in the city into hysterics, all which tended greatly to increase his popularity, there being nothing for which the public are more grateful than being frequently treated to a panic, a secret well known to modern editors. But, O oh ye powers, into what a paroxysm of passion did each new outrage of the Yankees throw the choleric little governor! letter after letter protest after protest bad latin worse english and hideous low dutch were incessantly fulminated upon them and the four-and-twenty letters of the alphabet which formed his standing army were worn out by constant campaigning all however was ineffectual even the recent victory at oyster bay which had shed such a gleam of sunshine between the clouds of his foul weather rain was soon followed by a more fearful gathering up of those clouds and indications of more portentous tempests for the yankee tribe on the banks of the connecticut finding on this memorable occasion their incompetency to cope in fair fight with the sturdy chivalry of the manhattoes had called to their aid all the ten tribes of their brethren who inhabit the east country which from them has derived the name of yankee land this call was promptly responded to the consequence was a great confederacy of the tribes of massachusetts connecticut new plymouth and new haven under the title of the united colonies of new england the pretended object of which was mutual defence against the savages but the real object the subjugation of the new nederlands for to let the reader into one of the greatest secrets of history the new nederlands had long been regarded by the whole yankee race as the modern land of promise and themselves as the chosen and peculiar people destined one day or other by hook or by crook to get possession of it in truth they are a wonderful and all prevalent people of that class who only require an inch to gain an ell or a halter to gain a horse from the time they first gained a foothold on plymouth rock they began to migrate progressing and progressing from place to place and land to land making a little here and a little there 
and controverting the old proverb that a rolling stone gathers no moss. Hence they have facetiously received the nickname of the Pilgrims, that is to say, a people who are always seeking a better country than their own. The tidings of this great Yankee League struck William Kieft with dismay, and for once in his life he forgot to bounce on receiving a disagreeable piece of intelligence. In fact, on turning over in his mind all that he had read at The Hague about leagues and combinations, he found that this was a counterpart of the Amphictyonic League, by which the states of Greece attained such power and supremacy, and the very idea made his heart quake for the safety of his empire at the Manhattoes. The affairs of the Confederacy were managed by an annual council of delegates, held at Boston, which Kieft denominated the Delphos of this truly classic league. The very first meeting gave evidence of hostility to the new Netherlanders, who were charged, in their dealings with the Indians, with carrying on a traffic in guns, powder, and shot, a trade damnable and injurious to the colonists. It is true the Connecticut traders were fain to dabble a little in this damnable traffic, but then they always dealt in what were termed Yankee guns, ingeniously calculated to burst in the pagan hands which used them. The rise of this potent confederacy was a death-blow to the glory of William the Testy, for from that day forward he never held up his head, but appeared quite crestfallen. It is true, as the Grand Council augmented in power, and the League, rolling onward, gathered about the red hills of New Haven, threatening to overwhelm the New Netherlands, he continued occasionally to fulminate proclamations and protests, as a shrewd sea-captain fires his guns into a water-spout. But, alas, they had no more effect than so many blank cartridges. Thus end the authenticated chronicles of the reign of William the Testy, for henceforth, in the troubles, perplexities, and confusion of the times, he seems to have been totally overlooked, and to have slipped forever through the fingers of scrupulous history. It is a matter of deep concern that such obscurity should hang over his latter days, for he was in truth a mighty and great little man, and worthy of being utterly renowned, seeing that he was the first potentate that introduced into this land the art of fighting by proclamation, and defending a country by trumpeters and windmills. It is true that certain of the early provincial poets, of whom there were great numbers in the New Netherlands, taking advantage of his mysterious exit, have fabled that, like Romulus, he was translated to the skies, and forms a very fiery little star, somewhere on the left claw of the crab, while others, equally fanciful, declare that he had experienced a fate similar to that of good King Arthur, who, we are assured by ancient bards, was carried away to the delicious abodes of fairyland, where he still exists in pristine worth and vigour, and will one day or another return to restore the gallantry, the honour, and the immaculate probity which prevailed in the glorious days of the round table. Footnote. The old Welsh bards believed that King Arthur was not dead, but carried away by the fairies into some pleasant place, where he should remain for a time, and then return again, and reign in as great authority as ever. Holland said. The Britons suppose that he shall come yet and conquer all Britain, for certes this is the prophecy of Merlin, 
he said that his death shall be doubtious, and said soth, for men thereof yet have doubt, and shullen for evermore, for men wit not whether that he liveth or is dead. Dilu Chronicle End footnote All these, however, are but pleasing fantasies, the cobweb visions of those dreaming varlets the poets, to which I would not have my judicious reader attach any credibility. Neither am I disposed to credit an ancient and rather apocryphal historian, who asserts that the ingenious Wilhelmus was annihilated by the blowing down of one of his windmills, nor a writer of later times, who affirms that he fell victim to an experiment in natural history, having the misfortune to break his neck from a garret window of the stadthouse in attempting to catch swallows by sprinkling salt upon their tails. Still less do I put my faith in the tradition that he perished at sea, in conveying home to Holland a treasure of golden ore, discovered somewhere among the haunted regions of the Catskill Mountains. Footnote. Diedrich Knickerbocker, in his scrupulous search after truth, is sometimes too fastidious in regard to facts which border a little on the marvellous. The story of the golden ore rests on something better than mere tradition. The venerable Adrian Vanderdonk, doctor of laws, in his description of the New Netherlands, asserts it from his own observation as an eye-witness. He was present, he says, in 1645, at a treaty between Governor Kieft and the Mohawk Indians, in which one of the latter, in painting himself for the ceremony, used a pigment, the weight and shining appearance of which excited the curiosity of the governor and Mynheer Vanderdonk. They obtained a lump, and gave it to be proved by a skilful doctor of medicine, Johannes de la Montagne, one of the councillors of the New Netherlands. It was put into a crucible, and yielded two pieces of gold, worth about three guilders. All this, continues Adrian van der Donk, was kept secret. As soon as peace was made with the Mohawks, an officer and a few men were sent to the mountain in the region of the Catskill, under the guidance of an Indian, to search for the precious mineral. They brought back a bucketful of ore, which, being submitted to the crucible, proved as productive as the first. William Kieft now thought the discovery certain. He sent a confidential person, Arendt Corson, with a bagful of the mineral to New Haven, to take passage in an English ship for England, thence to proceed to Holland. The vessel sailed at Christmas, but never reached her port. All on board perished. See Vanderdonk's description of the New Netherlands, collection of the New York Historical Society, volume 1, page 161. In the year 1647, Wilhelmus Kieft himself embarked on board the Princess, taking with him specimens of the supposed mineral. The ship was never heard of more. Some have asserted that the mineral in question was not gold, but pyrites but we have the assertion of Adrian Vanderdonk, an eyewitness, and the experiment of Johannes de la Montaigne, a learned doctor of medicine, on the golden side of the question. Cornelius van Tienhoven, also at that time secretary of the New Netherlands, declared in Holland that he had tested several specimens of the mineral, which proved satisfactory. 
it would appear however that these golden treasures of the Catskill always brought ill luck as is evidenced in the fate of arendt corson and wilhelmus kieft and the wreck of the ships in which they attempted to convey the treasure across the ocean the golden mines have never since been explored but remain among the mysteries of the Catskill mountains and under the protection of the goblins which haunt them End footnote. the most probable account declares that what with the constant troubles on his frontiers the incessant schemings and projects going on in his own pericranium the memorials petitions remonstrances and sage pieces of advice of respectable meetings of the sovereign people and the refractory disposition of his counsellors who were sure to differ from him on every point and uniformly to be in the wrong his mind was kept in a furnace heat until he became as completely burnt out as a dutch family pipe which has passed through three generations of hard smokers in this manner did he undergo a kind of animal combustion consuming away like a farthing rushlight so that when grim death finally snuffed him out there was scarcely left enough of him to bury end of section eight